This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Amy Sullivan, national correspondent for Time magazine. And since you're taking the time to listen to the entire interview, I'll give you a few logistical details. I spoke to Amy Sullivan on September 11, 2008, using a high-quality telephone line. I was in the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she was in Washington, D.C., at the headquarters of National Public Radio. This interview was included in the first part of our series, The Faith Life of the Party, and originally podcast on October 2, 2008. Download the MP3 of the produced show, as well as part two, at speakingoffaith.org. Okay, get your guests seated now on mic. Amy? Amy? Yes. Hi, it's Krista. Krista. Hi, Krista. How are you? Great. It's really good to have you at the other end of the microphone. <laughs> I'm so glad we're doing this. Yeah. And I was hearing an echo, but I actually think it just disappeared. Mitch, you're not hearing it, are you? Are you do you sound... Well, there's kind of an echo. Hmm. Well, I'm not hearing it. Yeah, I am. Uh, um, Amy, could you see if maybe um, you can turn your headphones down just a little bit? My headphones down? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to um, show you how to do it. Um, let me just keep talking. Testing, testing. Sounds fine now, I think. Okay. Um, I'm still hearing a little bit. Do you hear it, Mitch? All right. Um, Amy, do you have control of your headphone volume there, or, or do I, should I call? I have control here. Okay, great. It's quite a ways down. It's quite a ways down? Hmm. I still hear an echo around the edges. Let me just move back from the mic. I think I can live with that. Are you, Mitch, can you live with it? Okay, all right. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on all your success and great work and a great book. Thank you. <laughs> um, and do you have any questions of me before we start? Um, you know, I'm hearing an echo. Are you? Um, All right, let's try my headphones. It's not volume. as distracting as okay. it was before, Well, it is distracting. It'll drive you crazy. Uh, to talk a little bit and see if it's gone away. We just... Um, yeah, just, I, I guess the only question I, I had is what you would prefer in terms of, um, you know, my answer length... Uh, whether you know you'll feel free to interrupt me if I'm I will. babbling on too long. I will, <laughs> and I um, you know, part of what this show is about is we're anti-sound bite, so right, uh, <laughs> and we it's not live, and so we get to have a real conversation, and um, we we can edit down the answers as well. So don't just don't Great. worry about that. Um. So and uh, just to tell you what I think we're going to do with this, I'm also going to interview Rod Dreyer. Okay. And I think you're both, obviously you're quite different from each other, but you're both interesting in the same way in that I think you are each committed to um, your party and yet uh, challenging of it from the inside and also attentive observers to the religious dynamics of this election. Mm-hmm. So I really just you know, I want to talk to you about um, about the things that you're writing about all the time. So. Sure. Um, and just, you the know, only hmm. thing on that that I would um, just have a small request mm-hmm. uh, from my current employer yes. <laughs> is that uh, we're trying to be very careful not to describe me as a Democrat okay. or someone who's advising Democrats. All right. Um, certainly it's public record that I used to work for Democrats, and yeah. that's perfectly fine. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to come at this as an observer of Democrats. Okay. Can you um, can you be a liberal? Or are you trying um, to get away from all those labels? I think the partisan affiliation is the most important thing okay. to stay away from. All right. Well, I mean, I'm not. I'm also not going to introduce you as you know a Democrat. We'll we'll <laughs> credential you correctly. So all right. Sure. So we'll dance around that. Uh, is the echo gone for you? Yeah. yeah all right. This is much better. Thank Great. You. Okay. Um, where are you based, by the way? Are you based in New York or Washington? In Washington. Okay. All right. So. Um, just a little bit about you to start. You um, describe yourself in in your book and elsewhere as having grown up with and and then abundantly as a journalist um, uh, in your encounters with democratic politics. Uh, you you know a world of people who are liberal uh, liberal because of their religious beliefs, um, and you uh, are one of them. 
Um, you know, talk to me about that because that equation is not is not out there as much as it might be, although it perhaps is more out there than it used to be. Well, it certainly surprises a lot of people in Washington and in New York uh, where I have been working. When I tell them that I grew up in a home where we had portraits of Bobby Kennedy and of Jesus hanging <laughs> on the walls. Right. Um, I don't think they know many evangelicals uh, who grew up also stumping for Democratic candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that really was my first uh, foundational experience, I guess, uh, was growing up with parents uh, for whom their liberal politics were very much informed by their faith. And for my dad, that was being a liberal Catholic. And for my mom, it was being an evangelical Christian. And that's mm. the church in which I grew up. And I mean, you describe in your book... Um, the the the, the uh, specific beliefs that took you to or concerns um, was in fact you you use some of the same language that Barack Obama has used you know c- concern with the least of these the the injunction in in Matthew twenty five to um, feed the hungry and 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 clothe the you know care for the homeless and the sick um, and so th- those for you were moral values I think you would say is. Growing up, I was a pretty conscientious kid, uh, which meant that when I read the Bible, and particularly read the New Testament, I took it very seriously. I I really worried about uh, Mm -hmm. what we were taught, that, you know, we could encounter Jesus in ordinary people, and we needed to be very careful um, that we were caring for them the same way we would if we knew that was Jesus right across from us. Right. Um, And so, you know, this would lead me to worry that I wouldn't wasn't being nice enough to the kids in my elementary school or wasn't, you know, giving food away to people who needed it. Um, and whether or not that started as kind of um, a, a fear that I wasn't being a good enough Christian um, or whether it was connected more to the biblical injunction, I think it had a very strong impact on how I thought about my personal responsibility, but also the responsibility um, that we have as a society to care for people um, who maybe otherwise would fall through the cracks. And I think in many evangelical communities, um, that is seen in different ways. Uh, I have a lot of evangelical friends who say, we're sick and tired of being accused of not caring about the poor. That's not it. It's that we think that churches and private organizations should be responsible for taking care of the vulnerable in society, that that's not a role of the state. Um, And in my particular background growing up, there wasn't that distinction. Um, There was just the sense that people are hurting and we all are responsible for them. So, so just clarify that. What, what is particularly evangelical in your faith? Or the, the, the distinction is, is where that care should come from, how it should be exercised? Well, I think, actually, what I was trying to get into is that there are distinctions within evangelicalism okay. All right. um, mm-hmm. about the use of the state. Um, but it's interesting, uh, it was really through the course of writing this book that I got much more connected with what makes me an evangelical. Okay. Um, I had really stopped using that term to describe myself for a good 15 years, probably, um, certainly since since I left for college, which is uh, around the early 90s, uh, which was also a time when the religious right was the most visible vocal um, representative of evangelicalism in Mm -hmm. American life. And I made the mistake I think a lot of people have of conflating uh, political conservatism with evangelicalism. And I I looked at that, um, uh, that... movement and thought, well, I I don't agree with those politics. I must not be an evangelical. Um, And it's been really instructive for me personally. um, And then to be able to turn around and describe it to other people to explain that, no, that's that's not being an evangelical. It's not a political definition. It's a theological one. Right. Um, And, you know, my belief in a strong relationship with Jesus and a very personal conception of God um, and, uh, you know, a focus on the role of the Bible 
and my uh, my religious background and my religious grounding has nothing to do with who I vote for um, on election day mm-hmm. and even necessarily the specific issues that I choose um, to place at the top of my agenda. So you have been journalistically a close observer of American politics and and um, and you've paid special attention also in recent years to dynamics of religion um, in in the Democratic Party. And as you've noted, um, a lot has been said and written about the rise of the religious right and how it continues to evolve. But there's this lesser known story of the left's response to the rise of the religious right. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you know, there's a lot of wonderful, uh, important history um, that I, I, I agree has not been told parallel to the story of the religious right. Um, and I wonder, just as you watch this current election, um, what aspects of that, of history, um, you know, what, what have you wished people had in their minds for context as they analyze um, the religious dynamics as they're unfolding now? And obviously the election of 2008 is turning out to be very different even religiously than the election of 2004. Well, and it's different than uh, this particular election was even six months ago or right. one month ago. <laughs> right, right. Um, the fascinating thing is that religion does kind of um, throw an election upside down, um, and uh, it, it continues to be introduced in new and different ways, whether it's Jeremiah Wright or Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most important um, historical pieces that we still don't always remember is that religion wasn't always um, a, a factor in American politics, and particularly American presidential politics. We've gotten to the point um, where it, it really is something that uh, politicians are almost required to talk about. And I hear mm-hmm. all the time from people, particularly on the left, who are upset about the fact that we probably, at this point in our history, could not have a successful presidential candidate who just said um, outright that they were not a religious person. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, even, you know, called themselves an atheist. Um, it, it, it's worth remembering um, how we got to this point in order to ask ourselves why it's important to know about a person's religious beliefs. Um, so what just, do you think of when you think of how we got to this point? Well, I think one of the biggest changes um, came in the 1970s after Watergate, uh, and I think it was a personal, perfectly rational response um, to the national trauma that Watergate was. Before that, a lot of voters thought that it was sufficient to know the policies of the candidates who were running for president, mm. know where they stood on mm-hmm. Social Security, know where they stood on foreign policy. But Watergate was not a failure of policy. It was a moral failure. It was an ethical failure. And I think, again, the very rational response of voters was to realize that they needed to know something about the candidate's moral grounding. Mm, uh, Interesting. To know where those candidates' ethics and sense of morality came from. And it was just, you know, a coincidence that Jimmy Carter came along in the first election after that who was our first very openly evangelical uh, candidate, talked about being born again. He promised the country he'd never lie to them. And so we were at kind of this turning point where Americans were yearning for a deeper understanding of uh, their candidate's morality. We could have gone in any number of different directions Hmm. um, to give them that sense. But religion, and particularly evangelical strains of religion, uh, quickly became the proxy. Uh, for someone's moral grounding. You know, that's um, really an, an interesting way to analyze it. Um, I I really feel that younger people in particular, that that impulse is very much alive now. Um, I know uh, yeah, there does seem to be a bit of a generational divide in terms of how comfortable people are with politicians talking about religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that desire that younger people have for authenticity, to know who someone is and what they're about... Um, is there now as well. I mean, I have to also tell you, I I interviewed Jimmy Carter in the last year, and we went back and listened to some of the ads he ran during his campaign, and they made anything George W. Bush said about being Christian pale, right? <laughs> they were incredible, Inc- incredibly Christian. 
It's true. And that was very obviously a constituency that his campaign chose to court um, and with success. But what's interesting is to see someone like John McCain, um, who probably does fit in with the older Americans who feel that that's something that should be left right. private. It's just not uh, that, that comfortable with it. It's not something to overshare about. Right. And until he chose uh, Governor Palin as his running mate, and this may be a key reason he did choose her, he c- came under a lot of attack uh, from religious conservatives, not just for his stand on some policy issues where they differ, but mostly because he wasn't as open as they thought he should be about mm-hmm. his faith because they wanted him to talk about his connection to Jesus. And the only kind of bone he would throw them would be this story, this very moving story about the prison guard in the POW camp who drew a, a cross in the sand. Um, but it would just drive them up a wall because uh, many Christian conservative leaders saw that as a sign of somebody else's faith. Right. It's not really a, a story about, about him drawing a cross in, yeah. the, in the... It wasn't. Yard. And so he started to throw in a line about how there they were, two Christians venerating the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't how he had told the story for a good decade. Um, and yet that was a real political liability for him, the fact that he wasn't openly sharing about his faith the way that George W. Bush and, and many other candidates have mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to talk, though, about um, you know, so George W. Bush in the last few campaigns, um, what, well, in the last few campaigns, um, we did come to associate Republican, the Republican Party and the Republican candidate with the ones who were articulate about this. Um, and at the same time, and you were close to this, I believe, um, as a journalist and in Washington, um, the Kerry and Gore campaigns were famously inept about being articulate about this or knowing what to do about religion. And I mean, I'd like you to tell a little bit of that story, because, again, I don't think that was covered very well. And it is part of the backdrop to what's happening now. Well, certainly Bill Clinton has been better than almost any other Democrat in terms of just having a real instinctive understanding of the religious world, being very comfortable talking about his own faith, uh, but also knowing how to speak to different religious groups, how to talk to Catholics, how to talk to evangelicals or mainliners. Uh, Al Gore did not have that same comfort level, uh, but he also wasn't surrounded by campaign advisors uh, who were comfortable with the idea of a Democrat talking about religion. Um, So he really ceded that fairly early on to George W. Bush, who then, as we all know, made uh, his religious identity a key part of his political persona Mm -hmm. as well, both in 2000 and 2004. And of his electoral success. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a, a, a real reason that a lot of voters, particularly in the last election, who would just admit flat out that they disagreed with him on half a dozen different key policy areas, said, well, I'm voting for him because he's a man of faith. Right. Um, And and that's something that Democrats have found um, very difficult to understand. And and particularly in 2004, when they had a candidate of their own who um, was a a deeply observant Catholic. What a lot of people don't know is that um, John Kerry attends Mass whenever he possibly can, which is at least once a week, um, and is informed quite a bit by Catholic social teaching, and yet was extremely uncomfortable talking about it. Right. I mean, and you say people don't know it, but he, he ran for president, and it's not something a good that came across about him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and even it wasn't just John Kerry. One of the things I found uh, while researching the book was his running mate at the time, John Edwards, um, has a leather-bound, embossed copy of The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, which is a book read by millions and millions of Americans. Mm-hmm. And he reads it every day. And this was a detail I found out after the fact by someone who had seen it in his office. It was certainly not something that the campaign ever thought was relevant or that voters would want to know about. Now, they, they may have been making the determination that it wasn't relevant uh, to how John Kerry and and John Edwards would govern if they were elected. And that may very well be right. 
But that's not the role that religion plays in our campaign process. Again, it's something that gives voters an insight into who candidates are right. and what their moral grounding is. Uh, but they'll never learn if the candidates and the campaigns don't see fit to share these things with voters. You know, you told a story that I had never heard that um, Bill Hybels was an advisor to Clinton, and Bill Hybels founded uh, one of the, I mean, really, I think the model megachurch, Willow Creek Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I didn't know that he was a Democrat or is a Democrat, and that in 2004, there was a suggestion floated that he should be invited to speak at the Democratic Convention, but that when the organizers saw that he was opposed to abortion and gay marriage, even though he's a Democrat and really a very influential evangelical figure, um, that idea was nixed. Yes, well, he didn't pass the litmus test, uh, and there's a litmus test even for religious figures, or there was. Um, Certainly in 2004, I think that was part of the basic operating assumption of the Kerry campaign was that white evangelicals were not their voters. Um, So even though highlighting a uh, white evangelical who had founded, as you say, one of the most important megachurches in the country, uh, that might have been of some use um, and importance uh, that was seen as um, giving voice to the other side, hmm. even though Bill Hybels is very much a Democrat and has been uh, quite supportive of Democratic candidates. In 2008, you'll notice um, that was different at the Democratic convention. Uh, Joel Hunter gave the closing benediction. Now, um, Joel Hunter is Pentecostal, days. right? But he's, is he also a Republican, technically speaking? He has been a Republican. I'm not sure he identifies himself that okay. way, but he certainly doesn't say he's a Democrat now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he hasn't said who he's voting for. Okay. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about that. You wrote in 2003 um, in a Democratic publication that until professional Democrats get over their aversion to all things religious, they will continue to suffer the political consequences. Um, have Has the Democratic Party um, gotten over that aversion, or is it getting over that aversion? Very slowly, okay. by baby steps. Okay. And I would say the biggest change we've seen um, from, say, four or five years ago is not even necessarily among the political class of the Democratic Party. It's among Democratic politicians themselves who now, you know, whether it's Catholics who are reacting kind of as a backlash to what they saw as uh, the church stepping in to prevent one of their own from becoming president in 2004, or whether it's just religious Democrats who now feel that they have more of an obligation to be open about who they are. Many more Democratic politicians are talking about their faith, are making an issue of it, um, on the campaign trail are, are feeling very free um, to connect the issues they care about with values issues. You know, they mm-hmm. were very upset by the idea that the only values on the campaign are abortion and gay marriage. Um, and there's been a real push. Right, those were the um, moral to, values to that, that idea. divided us. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's it's been pretty fascinating to me that the pat generalizations of the last few elections that you could make that the Democrats, that the Democrats are more, sorry, that the Republicans would be more openly uh, and articulately religious and and Democrats less so, you know, have have pretty much been turned on their head with um, not just a John McCain, who, as you said, is somebody who's a person of faith, but not that comfortable talking about it. And um, a Barack Obama, who has been very much at ease with that as part of his identity. It has and it hasn't. Um, Earlier in the summer, I would have said we've seen a sea change Mm -hmm. from 2004 and that certainly both parties are preventing, both parties are presenting very different pictures of what we have come to assume um, in terms of religion and and Republicans and Democrats. The selection of Sarah Palin really has highlighted um, the double standards that I believe still exist. Um, And I say this as someone who has very carefully watched how both Republican and Democratic politicians are covered when it comes to their faith. 
um, it, there is still a very high bar uh, for Democrats uh, to prove that they are truly, authentically, really people of faith. Um, and even once they have, uh, their positions on uh, issues such as abortion and gay marriage are still kind of held up to prove um, that they're not really religious. So who sets that high bar? Is it journalists? Is it evangelical Christians? I think conservative Christians certainly have, uh, at least the ones who are politically active, have an incentive in defining um, what it is to be authentically Christian Mm -hmm. um, as someone who has uh, very conservative policies when it comes to abortion and other hot-button moral issues. Uh, But journalists have bought into it. You know, if you've watched Barack Obama over the last few years, there's no question if you listen to the speech that he gave in 2006 to Jim Wallace's um, call to renewal organization, Mm -hmm. or you you listen to the answers that he gave at the Saddleback Forum, which I think was incorrectly interpreted as a real mistake for him or a a weak performance. But his answers uh, were much more... Um, uh, much more comfortable. Uh, the way he talked about faith um, sounded like many Christians I know, both uh, liberal and conservative, uh, in terms of trying to be humble, trying to look for God's will. Right. I mean, he gave a pretty, life. very nuanced answer to the basic question of what it meant for him to be Christian. Um, whereas, as you say, John McCain told the story about the the cross in the sand again. Well, and he had a very uh, compact answer about his faith, which is that he has been forgiven and saved, mm-hmm. which is a, a very um, efficient <laughs> way of, of stating his beliefs, um, uh, but wouldn't seem to be um, you know, as, as full um, a description as many religious voters are looking for. Mm-hmm. And yet it, it may be because of Barack Obama's unique family background, the fact that uh, his father was born a Muslim, uh, the fact of his name, uh, that has really raised serious questions uh, among a lot of voters you talk to who they've heard Obama talk about his faith. They know that he's been a Christian for over two decades and been very involved with his church, but they don't believe it. They don't quite think that he could be an authentic Christian. And yet along comes Sarah Palin, um, who to date has um, not spoken publicly about her faith, at least not on the campaign trail, um, who does not describe herself as an evangelical. She says she's a Christian, uh, but she no longer calls herself Pentecostal, even though she grew up in a Pentecostal church. Um, and she was immediately, within a matter of hours, <laughs> accepted by the religious right as one of them um, and described in nearly every paper in America as a woman with a deep religious faith. Right. So, I mean, uh, how do you analyze this? What does it mean? Where does it come from? What does it say about the people who are writing about this or accepting this logic? I think this is a result of really 40 years of uh, religion being um, seen in the public square as something that belonged uh, purely on the right. Hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. It it took me a whole book to describe them. Um, But it includes the fact that I think the religious left kind of uh, drew back into the shadows as the religious right really rose to power. Um, And the fact that uh, Democratic politicians felt less and less comfortable talking about their faith, in part because when they did speak um, as religious individuals, they were assumed to be conservative. Um, it was assumed that their policies um, would move to the center and to the right um, along with their faith. Um, and so it, it became, I think, uh, politically damaging for a lot of Democrats um, to be open about their faith, not because people wouldn't vote for them, but because of the assumptions that were made about what their politics must really be. And I think I give the religious right a lot of credit. They were very, very effective at um, establishing this conventional wisdom that if you're religious, you must be conservative, and the issues that must drive you 
must be uh, these moral hot-button issues. Mm -hmm. And my profession uh, really fell for it. (laughs) Um, Your profession in journalism. Well, Mm -hmm. for for years you would see, particularly on, on cable shows, when there would be a debate about religion, they would book somebody from the religious right um, and then they would put them opposite someone from the ACLU or Barry <laughs> Lynn. There is nothing in between. And the picture the viewers at home would get was mm-hmm. that religion was on the right, and mm-hmm. on the left you had people who wanted to keep religion out of the public square, right. which is a perfectly principled view um, that I respect quite a bit. Uh, but there was no room for people who were religious and uh, had liberal politics. Right. And I was a little bit surprised. I mean, it's not that I read absolutely everything that was written, uh, but I didn't feel that there was huge coverage of the pretty astonishingly big, especially astonishing in comparison with previous years, uh, presence of religious people and language, and there was even a prayer and a worship service that started off the Democratic National Convention in Denver. Um, you you were there, I assume. Were you, did I see some? I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it was somewhat astonishing to see um, a, a caucus for people of faith. But you know, when I was watching it, what I, I felt was less kind of a sense that I was um, witnessing something new and more uh, just a disbelief that this hadn't existed before. <laughs> okay. Um, it's amazing to me that it was 2008 and that was the first time that the party made room for people who were Democrats because of their faith. Mm. Um, And and they still have a ways to go. I would say that uh, certainly a majority of Democratic delegates um, are people who have a strong faith. Um, And yet I don't think they knew about the caucus. You looked around the room, it was mostly people from the kind of professional religion ranks mm-hmm. um, who you see at, at conferences in Washington all the time. Um, and it was great for them to have their own space at the convention. It'll be even better if in 2012 your average Democratic delegate who isn't necessarily involved um, with these organizations now feels like that's a, a space for them as well within the party. Right. Now, the caucus, there was also the interfaith event. Is that what you're talking about, or is this something, was that another? That was separate. The interfaith event by 3,000 people, is that right? Yes. And were those delegates rather than just professional religious people? I think it was a mixture of delegates, and um, but mostly uh, religious leaders who had come to Denver to kind of be on the the outskirts and then people from the Denver community as well. It's so hard to try to assess um, what difference this makes uh, because it obviously was a a space for people to worship that hadn't existed in previous um, conventions and yet it was also so uh, um, hamstrung by continued democratic attempts um, to include everybody under the sun and therefore <laughs> okay. often represent nobody. Hmm. Um, just as one example, uh, there were references in the program uh, to Buddha and to Muhammad and to all sorts of religious faiths. Um, there was a real disagreement among the organizers on whether the name Jesus could be mentioned <sighs> because that was seen as something that was divisive. Uh, which, as an evangelical Christian, it, it just breaks my heart uh, mm. to think that uh, Jesus is a political term that can be seen uh, to exclude and divide people. Hmm. I mean, so as you said, um, our fellow journalists have often not seen the nuance. And, uh, you know, recently this I've seen this happen in a few publications. The New Yorker, or there was an article in The New Yorker where somebody had suddenly discovered Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and Ron Sider, these, um, you know, these, um, I don't know, what do you want to call them? On the scene. Evangelical Christians who've always been about progressive politics and have been around for decades. Uh, Ron Sider started Evangelicals for Social Action. And, um, you know, I just want to ask you, just so the New Yorker discovers them and they're new, but the truth is they have been around a long time. Um, they are they are more visible, though, outside. Are these kinds of figures also gaining more clout inside the party? 
they are definitely being listened to in the party, which wasn't happening a, a few years ago. Now, you know, whether you um, take a somewhat more cynical view of this, as uh, my friend E.J. Dion likes to say, that Democrats found God in the exit polls of 2004. <laughs> right. um, it, it's E.J. Dion, of course, another great well, lib- Democrat who is deeply uh, a deeply religious person. He's definitely been on this beat uh, for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I do think there's some of that involved. I think that uh, there are Democrats who are sick of losing. And if one of the ways they could win is to reach out to religious voters, well, then, by God, they're happy to do it. Uh, but they want someone to kind of hand them a, a, a battle plan for how mm-hmm. um, how they can win by reaching out to religious people. And I think there are others who are genuinely... Um, just not sure how to go about forming these relationships with religious communities um, they haven't spoken to in decades. Uh, there are groups, you know, uh, from my home state in Michigan, the western half of the state uh, is very much uh, full of conservative uh, religious denominations, particularly the Reformed Church. And uh, in 2006, the state party decided to spend a year just going around having get-to-know-you meetings, hmm. uh, really introducing themselves to these religious leaders and to the communities for the first time. Um, and it was really startling uh, because these groups had not heard from Democrats in decades. And it's hard to know how you're going to get people to vote for you if you're not even speaking to them. Hmm. It may be at the end of the day after you've met with them, uh, you find you don't have a lot in common. Uh, but that's, in fact, not what happened. They, hmm. they did find areas of common ground. and um, I, I'm not sure that means that there are droves of new Democratic voters, but there are at least voters who are willing to uh, give them the benefit of the doubt, willing now, to give them a listen. I mean, by contrast, Barack Obama, I hear, has been much more effective um, for, for quite a while, for a number of months, at reaching out to high-level evangelical leaders um, who also have had little contact with the Democratic Party in recent years. And I've also heard that the McCain campaign has not been as effective at um, reaching out to those particular leaders of constituencies. But is that really coming from him more than from the Democratic base or the party so you put your finger on it, Mm -hmm. yes. Um, That one of the reasons Bill Clinton was so successful... Uh, with religious voters and um, able to bring people who didn't agree with him to sit down and talk is that it it came from him. Um, And it was hard for his staff to say, well, this is what the boss wants, but we don't agree with it. (laughs) Uh, It was really driven by Clinton, who almost served as his own religious liaison in the White House Hmm. uh, because he knew more about that community than almost anyone else. It's the same here where uh, this is something that comes from Obama. Uh, He knows what the weaknesses of the party have been. He knows that he is uniquely qualified uh, to talk to people who don't agree with him. And he's willing to spend two hours sitting in a room with people that include Franklin Graham, Mm -hmm. um, who really didn't let him off the hook, really Mm. nailed him with a, a, a couple of really tough questions about Uh, what Obama thinks about salvation, who Mm -hmm. he thinks is going to heaven or not. And Obama didn't back down. He didn't give the answers that uh, he knew the leaders wanted to hear, um, but also refused to let them leave thinking, all right, well, um, he's not with us exactly where we are in these theological questions. So, um, you know, we, we... can write him off. Right. The questions Um, were about members of his family who are not Christian, right? Whether his Muslim father went to heaven and his... Well, Franklin Graham asked him, do you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Mm -hmm. And Obama answered, Jesus is my way, which was not what Franklin Graham wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. He wanted to hear that as a Christian, Obama believed that uh, you could only uh, be saved through Jesus. Um, But his answer is very understandable when you know that his mother... Um, was not a religious person, uh, didn't grow up in the church, and didn't raise him in the church. And he simply said, I cannot believe in a God who would allow my mother to suffer eternally. 
Um, mm. She was the best person I have ever known, the most moral person. Mm -hmm. And there has to be room in my faith uh, for someone like that. Um, not surprisingly, I think a lot of the religious energy and debate that had religious dynamics at the convention um, had to do with the issue of abortion. And Tony Campolo was very involved in that, drafting that resolution. Um, and I, I find that it's so easy for any discussion about this to just get stuck on abortion. Mm. Um, and you know what I'd love to discuss with you, I mean, I'm trying to discuss with as many people these days, is why is it, how would you explain why abortion is this deal breaker? You know, why is this the place where it seems um, both sides fall into a rut and there is no reconciliation and it becomes so um, polarizing? Well, it has become um, the issue a lot of people use, particularly a lot of religious people, um, to judge whether you are uh, really religious or not. Um, and so, you know, we've discussed for, for a number of politicians, particularly for Catholic politicians, mm -hmm. um, that becomes the position uh, a lot of people point to to say, aha, well, you can't really be a Catholic. Um, you say you're a Catholic, you abide by Catholic teaching and all these other issues, but mm -hmm. if you don't support abortion restrictions, then clearly you, you don't um, follow the teaching of the church. Uh, that's been, it's hard to call it a, a simplistic way of looking at the issue because I, I don't mean to say that people um, who believe strongly in a purist approach um, to uh, eliminating abortion, um, that they're not uh, well motivated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we have had these two very extreme approaches up till now. One is, um, you know, just to very broadly describe them, um, one is to put all your eggs in the row basket and say, well, we just need to overturn Roe v. Wade or we need a constitutional uh, amendment to ban abortion. Right. Um, and that's our goal, and nothing short of that goal is acceptable. And the other is to say, well, maybe it would be a good thing if there were fewer abortions, and many people on the left um, are not even quite willing to to put themselves there. Um, but that, that is what seems to be changing, that discussion on the left. Um, it is changing a bit. It's mm. instructive to look at the debate that led to the new Democratic platform, because in many ways it is um, a step forward in terms of taking abortion out of this black and white debate mm -hmm. and into the realm of um, how can you uh, achieve practical successes in reducing the abortion rate, which is something that many people both pro-life and pro-choice can agree on. And so, for instance, there is now this language in the Democratic platform uh, saying that the party supports efforts um, to make abortion um, less necessary, to reduce the need for abortion is mm -hmm. the language that they use. Um, and that's, that's telling language um, because uh, there were many liberal Democrats uh, involved with writing the platform who were very uncomfortable with the idea of stating that the party supported reducing the abortion rate or reducing the number of abortions. Mm -hmm. uh, they said that that was implying a, um, that it would be morally good thing for there to be fewer abortions. Um, and that's a little odd because if you put it to most ordinary Americans, they would say, well, of course it would be a good thing if there were fewer abortions. Right. And there is, in fact, a majority of people who, even in that same moral values poll, exit poll in 2004, right, there's a there's something like a 60 percent majority of people who will say they favor they abortion with limits. Right. I mean, of course, then there's a discussion to have about what those limits are. But that is the majority position mm -hmm. in the U.S., is mm -hmm. people who think that, that there should be limits on abortion, but it should absolutely not be outlawed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I will say, we you talked a minute ago about the Saddleback Forum, and I also felt like this was um, one of the parts of, um, of Obama's answers, which was really poorly reported. The only thing that was pulled out was the soundbite where... His answer, his direct answer to the question, when does life begin, was, well, that's above my pay grade. But then he went mm -hmm. on to give very nuanced uh, 
reflection on, and in fact, you know, in contrast to what you're saying, the, how you're saying that discussion has gone in the party, um, to say this is a moral and spiritual issue and uh, to talk about the dignity and the difficulty of the choices women make. Um, and so it sounds like he's actually um, in a different place on this issue than the convention was. Is that right? He is. You know, it's really amazing to think back. I believe it was uh, three years ago that Hillary Clinton gave a speech on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade in which she declared that abortion um, was a sad, even tragic choice Mm -hmm. uh, for many women, kind of stating what most of us know to be true. Um, And that uh, resulted in a ton of media coverage. It was, you know, oh my goodness, that must have been the first time a Democrat ever (laughs) said those words about abortion. And yet just a few years later, um, not only can the Democratic presidential nominee show up to a conservative evangelical church <laughs> for a discussion, which would have been news enough mm-hmm, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you say, he can acknowledge that uh, there's a real moral dimension to abortion and that the goal should be to make it um, less prevalent than it is right. and to do whatever you can to take practical steps to actually lower that instead of fighting kind of these uh, continuous battles that don't actually budge the abortion rate a bit. Right. You know, I was was in in doing moderating a panel discussion recently, and um, Jim Wallace was on the panel, and Richard Land was on the panel from the Southern Baptist Convention, and and I posed this question about why is this the deal breaker? And um, Richard Land, you know, laid it out. I mean, he said this this gets the question of, of, of the dignity and sacredness of human life, um, and what more important question could there be? Um, but but what is so where both sides get stuck is that those, it's precisely that kind of analysis that that a lot of Democrats use to talk about why they support the policies they support. I mean, I know at the Denver Convention, Bishop Charles Blake of the Church of God in Christ, who's a pro-life Democrat, right, mm-hmm. said that part of the reason that he I mean, he really challenged the party on that. But he also said that he's a Democrat because of the the policies it has towards people who are already born. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just longing myself for a more nuanced discussion across the divine. That's exactly right. And I think that now we're seeing uh, more space within the party um, uh, for religious leaders, uh, particularly pro-life leaders, to really challenge um, Democrats. It's not as if anyone thinks that the Democratic Party will or even should um, change its platform to oppose Roe v. Wade or to support uh, restrictions on abortion. I think the party has always stood for protecting a woman's right to choose, and um, and that's where it will stay. Um, but it should be seen as progress, that there is space um, to, to move towards um, reducing uh, abortion rates in a way that also protects women at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was striking to see Bob Casey Jr. Um, giving a talk at the convention and also mentioning that he was a pro-life Democrat and that he disagreed with the platform and with Obama on that issue. Um, that itself, I think, was a sign uh, to many pro-life voters that they are welcome in the Democratic Party in a way that they may not, in fact, have felt welcome in the past. Mm-hmm. I just want to touch on a very interesting um, critique you made, you've made that um, for a long time the Democratic Party kind of got around um, some of the issues with this by, as you called it, outsourcing religion to African-American churches. <laughs> And t- talk about what you mean by that, and is that how is that evolving? I guess the Jeremiah Wright uh, events kind of in that in that that kind of came back to bite the Democrats. So talk to me about that dynamic. Well, and I think one of the reasons that uh, the discovery of some of Jeremiah Wright's more fiery and uh, controversial sermons surprised Democrats as well as Republicans is that Democrats for so long had thought of black churches as kind of these innocuous places where you could hear good music. Really great gospel um, music. 
good gospel music, yeah. good brunch after the service. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a place where politicians felt they needed to go the weekend before the election. Uh, but it was because it was a convenient place to find a lot of black voters under one roof, not because they were necessarily thinking of it as a religious house. Um, and uh, apparently they weren't listening to the sermons. With a robust and challenging either. theology. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, most black pastors um, aren't giving Jeremiah Wright sermons every week, um, but they are preaching truth to power. Um, they're angry and they're upset. Um, and that's the prophetic tradition is mm-hmm. being angry at the injustices in the world. Um, and I think almost uh, many Democrats uh, were listening to the music of the pastor's voices. You often hear black preachers mm. described as melodic yeah. without actually listening to the words <laughs> that they were speaking. Okay. And so when I talk about outsourcing religion, you know, in the past, uh, it's not been unusual at all to hear uh, preachers uh, giving prayers or offering prayers at Democratic conventions. Uh, but they've almost all been black uh, because I think, again, that was seen as kind of a, a safe religious leader, mm-hmm. um, someone who, you know, I think I describe in the book as a, a cute, cuddly social justice mascot. Right. You know, they remind us of the civil rights, which is a civil rights movement. That's the one uh, combination of religion and politics the Democrats have liked to point to. Um, and say, well, Martin Luther King was a pastor, so it can't all be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where they really wanted to limit it. And so, you know, the, I think the low point for Democrats in 2004 was a story I report in the book where uh, some white Catholic activists came to the Kerry campaign in Ohio, which we all know turned out to be something of a key state, and said that they wanted to do some outreach on behalf of the campaign. And the field director looked at them and said, well, but we don't do white churches. Right. <laughs> right. And and do, is the party moving past that? I, I mean, I think Barack Obama as the presidential candidate this year has got to be as unsettling, you know, possibly in a good way um, to those kinds of entrenched positions as anyone could be. It's still somewhat slow um, when you look at the level of professional campaigns um, and and particularly resources and where those resources are used. There's been a lot of talk about expanding the party's outreach, um, particularly to Catholics or to evangelicals. I think it's going to take a few election cycles uh, where people can look at the results and actually see an increase Um, in the Catholic vote for Democrats or the evangelical vote. And the question is, do you get that increase without reaching out to them? Um, It's kind of a a chicken and the egg riddle for them, Um, because if you withhold resources until you see it's going to be of some use to you, well, you never may get that support. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, just to circle around, we just have a few minutes left. Um, there's this level of uh, political strategy, which can sound quite cynical, and it is quite cynical on every side of any campaign at many moments. But, you know, you're, you are not only a, a journalist about this, you, you feel that it's really important, and it's important for you to be able to bring these things together in your life as a private person. Um, I mean, you have this moment of kind of confession in your book or self-criticism where you you say if the people I'd once worshipped with had such negative views of Democrats and political liberals, I decided it was because too many religious Democrats had not followed the instructions of one of our favorite Sunday school tunes, This Little Light of Mine. Um, And, you know, you're you're, you're suggesting that Democrats um, and all kinds of religious people need to become more articulate about that. Is that right? I mean, that's for you as an antidote to the, to the ruts we've gotten into? I think it's key. Um, we are not going to change our kind of cemented stereotypes of who religious Americans are unless uh, more people who deviate uh, from the norm that we've seen, uh, more people who are liberal um, in their politics, if not their theology, um, become vocal and talk about uh, their faith and and who they are as 
political beings as well. You know, I think of it in terms of coming out of the closet. Um, <laughs> and it's not always a comfortable thing. Um, I've spent much of the past few years talking about being a liberal and being an evangelical, um, both with conservatives and with liberals. And none of them are happy about it um, because it just shakes up too many things uh, that they thought they had settled. Mm. Um, but we almost always have productive conversations. You know, I have conservatives who are really curious to know how I can reconcile uh, being liberal with a Christian identity, not to mention even being evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been really useful to walk them past the issues um, that have been kind of where their politics started and ended um, and, and to really push them to think um, beyond just sticking with one party. And, and that, I guess, is kind of um, my bottom line is um, as a religious individual, I, I just don't think um, that I should have uh, just one political option open to me. Hmm. Um, and I, I think all sorts of religious voters have erred um, by not challenging their political parties. Um, really, you know, if, if you're in a religious person, it's tough to look at either political party and think that you match up exactly uh, with every issue right. in that party. Um, but when you're only voting for one party, uh, they have no incentive to really listen to you um, <laughs> okay. or to respond to your concerns. And that's what we're seeing change this year, I think. Um, if Catholics and, and moderate evangelicals end up being swing voters the way we've thought that they will be, they'll be in more of a position to really demand that both parties listen to them and listen to their, their concerns. Hmm. That's great. I think that's your last word. We've got about two minutes. I do want to ask you, oh, hang on, there's a question from behind the glass. I'll be quiet for a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, right. So I don't know if I want to ask that now because we've just got a few minutes. I think it's too too big. Okay. I, I want to ask you, there's, there's some polling by Pew that I've spent time looking at um, that suggests even at the same time as you and I have been discussing um, that there's a real appetite for politicians to show who they are, including to be articulate about their religious identities and where they draw their morals from. Um, there's also a real, um, there's, a, there's a large segment of the population that seems to be really ambivalent and kind of have an antipathy, antipathy to politicians talking about religion. Um, and I haven't. I, I'm just curious if you how you make sense of that polling. Is there a generational divide? Is that partly a response to um, to to the perception even within the Republican Party? I mean, now Sarah Palin's changed the equation, but there's been a lot of disillusionment in the Repub even among evangelicals about George. You know, adding up George W. Bush's religiosity with the policies that followed. I don't know. Do you have any yeah, wisdom I, on that? <laughs> I do think it's almost entirely a response to George W. Bush. I think people um, kind of have him in mind now when they hear questions about religion and politics. We saw this when I was working at the Pew Forum, and we did a poll um, asking the, the question that is asked at regular intervals about whether the president um, should rely more or less or about the same on his religious beliefs um, when considering issues of public policy. And we were surprised to see large numbers of particularly Democrats saying he should rely more on his religious faith, which we realized when we dug down 
wasn't Democrats who thought, well, this is fantastic. Let's have him be even <laughs> okay. more gung-ho about uh-huh. being evangelical. It was that they thought, well, if he paid attention to his faith more, he would come to different conclusions. Interesting. Uh, he wouldn't be uh, going into Iraq the same way. He would be supporting the environment more. He would be putting more money into children's health. Interesting. Um, that they see those connections between religion and politics, and they wish he was making them more. So is there a lesson from that? I mean, do you see Barack Obama or even John McCain, the Republican Party, drawing lessons from that kind of uh, complexity that came out of George Bush's openness about his faith? Well, you do hear Obama when he speaks about faith. Uh, First of all, be very careful to always include people of no faith as well. And I think that does come from his personal background as somebody who was um, secular until his 20s. Um, But the second thing he does is really, um, and this was where I think he tripped himself up with his answer about the pay grade, which sounded flip. I've heard him give an answer. Mm -hmm. Um, He's given a a fuller version of that answer where he really pushes home the point um, that he thinks there are a lot of things that as humans we cannot know, that we have to trust God and that is presumptuous of us. Uh, to make decisions on, for instance, something like when life begins. Um, And it's kind of a a theology of humility um, that he keeps pushing in opposition to, I think, what he sees as Bush's theology of certainty, the idea that we can know absolutely what God wants us to do and that we have no questions um, that we are following God's will. That's been kind of the overriding public uh, faith of the last eight years, and I do think that we will see that change um, whether or not John McCain or Barack Obama wins the White House. Great. This is great, Amy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to have lunch with you sometime, maybe. when You said you're in Washington, right? I am. I'll call yeah. you sometime Are when you I'm here? out there. No, I'm in Minnesota, but I get to, I get to New York more. But do you more, get here? I do. I get there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think great. I'm going to be there in the new year, so I'll give you a call. All right. That would be wonderful. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. You you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.